0: It's good to be with you here on a Wednesday evening. I've brought with me one of my favorite books. Maybe uh, some of you have a copy of it. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have a copy of this? Well, we're not going to read out of that tonight, so... The title of our message tonight is Dealing with Doubt. And if you've ever encountered doubt in a way that... Our subject tonight, John the Baptist did. I believe that we'll take great comfort in the words that we hear this evening. If you want to pre-mark your Bibles, we will be in Matthew chapter 11. In Pilgrim's Progress, we have the story of Pilgrim. His name is Christian, and he's leaving the city of destruction, and he's headed toward the celestial city. And he goes through many trials and joys. But there comes a point where he comes to this meadow and he has been joined by a friend by the name of Hopeful. And they encounter Doubting Castle and a giant named Despair. Let's pick up here. Now there was, not far from the place where they lay, a castle called Doubting Castle, owned by giant Despair. And it was on his land that they were sleeping. Therefore, when he got up early in the morning, he walked up and down his fields. He caught Christian and hopeful asleep on his property. Then with a grim and surly voice, he told them to wake up and asked them where they had come from and what they were doing on his land. They told him they were pilgrims and that they had lost their way. Then said the giant. You have trespassed on me by trampling in and lying on my grounds, and therefore you must go along with me. So they were forced to go because he was stronger than they. They also had little to say because they knew that they were at fault. The giant plotted them on before him and put them into a dark dungeon inside his castle a nasty and stinking place to the spirit of these men. Here they lay from Wednesday till Saturday night without one bite of bread or a drop of water or light or anyone to ask how they were. Thus, they were in this evil situation far from friends and acquaintances. Now, in this place, Christian had double sorrow because it was through his ill-advised haste that they had gotten into this trouble. Now, the giant despair had a wife, and her name was Diffidence, sweet gal. So when he went to bed, he told his wife what he had done, that is, that he had taken a couple of prisoners and cast them into his dungeon for trespassing on his grounds. Then he asked her what he should do with them. So she asked him who they were, where they came from, and where they were going, and he told her. Then she advised him to beat them without mercy in the morning. Nice lady. So when he arose, he got a heavy club made from the wood of a crab tree, and he went down into the dungeon to the prisoners. First he scolded them as if they were dogs, although they never spoke a word of complaint to him. Then he beat them so badly that they were unable to move. After this, he left them in their misery, so that all day they did nothing but sigh and moan bitterly. Sometimes life can deal us such heavy blows that it shakes our world, it shakes us to our very core. Something so strong, so long-lasting that it may cause us to question our very own faith, calling into question much of what we believe about God and his working in our lives and even the world itself. I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who, that great Victorian preacher who had suffered much of this malady himself. He said, I feel very grateful to God that I have undergone tearful depression of spirits. I know the borders of despair and the horrible brink of that gulf of darkness into which my feet have almost gone but hundreds of times I have been able to give helpful grip to the brethren and sisters who have come into the same condition, which grip I could have never given if I had not known their deep despondency. So I believe that the darkest and most dreadful experience of the child of God will help him to be a fisher of men if he will but allow himself to Christ to follow him. Keep close to your Lord and he will make every step a blessing to you. One thing we note for sure about God is that he is always searching for those broken-hearted, doubting, downtrodden people in this world. He seeks to pull us out of the pit and sets our feet on solid path of faith and sends us off to fight again, to fight another day. Let's look at Matthew chapter 11. Beginning in verse 1, we notice that, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way Before you, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's pray. Lord, we submit ourselves to you, to your keeping at this time. We thank you that in a week you have given us moments where we can set aside our daily activity and come and set at your feet and learn of you lord we go through a myriad of emotions and trials and joys on a weekly basis but tonight lord we come to hear you to hear your word we know you're here with us lord and we honor you in your presence lord we need your wisdom tonight Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. The study will go in three parts tonight. Verses 2 and 3, we will see John's doubt revealed. He'll be asking the right questions. Verses 4 through 6, we have doubt confronted by Jesus, the right answer. And verses 7 through 11, we have doubt confounded, the right affirmation. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, we have to set the scene here. First of all, John is in prison, and we have to ask the question, how did he get there? I mean, he was a good Baptist boy. I don't know what kind of people he got tangled up with. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 3, we'll look in verse 19 and 20. He says, But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all that he shut John up in prison. This is what had happened. You had the Herodian dynasty, the, the family of Herod the Great, run amok. All of these kids. Dad was terrible, and his kids were just as terrible. And so Herod Antipas was the tetrarch, the the governor of this area of Galilee, the northern portion of Israel. And he had made a trip to Rome. And during his trip to Rome, um, he fell in love, probably fell in lust with his brother's wife, Herodias. His brother was named Philip. And so he asked her, come back and live with me. But their only condition was is that he divorce his wife, and so she moves in with her daughter. And John, preaching in that area, it's a very small, uh, uh, scarcely populated area. It's like hometown news. And John, preaching against him, he was a man of guts. He was not afraid. And so he spoke out publicly against Herod, and he wound up in jail. He got himself into what we would call political trouble. Now, I wonder what was going through his mind as he was led off to prison. The place where he was taken, Josephus tells us, Josephus was a a first century historian. He tells us that he was taken to the fortress Macaris, which is about four miles east of the Dead Sea and about 14 miles southeast of the mouth of the Jordan River. It is a place that had been built for a number of years and remodeled by the Herodians, or Herod the Great, as a palace-slash-fortress. It was very well fortified. It was second only to Jerusalem. It stood on a hill about 3,500 feet above the Dead Sea, and it was only accessible by one side. Now, John took the trip probably on foot, being chained, led with a garrison of soldiers, and I wonder what he was thinking as he was walking along the way. I wonder if I went too far this time. I wonder if I said the wrong things. Or maybe in his mind he was rolling over the thought, Oh, wicked Herod, of course you would respond this way. You can't stand anyone to say the truth to you, so you throw me in jail. What a coward. Or, I wonder if he thought, I wonder what my followers will do now that I'm not around. Will they start some type of insurrection? What will they do? I wonder if I'll ever get out of here or if I will die in this place. And then I have to ask the question, did he ever wonder if Jesus knew what happened and what was going on? When he arrived there, he would be thrown into a pit or a hole away from all the action, away from his ministry, left alone, left alone to rot. That was his lot. Now... To really understand what has happened here, we have to do a little bit of background in history on John the Baptist. First of all, we notice from Scripture that he was a child of prophecy. Over in Isaiah 40, verse 3, we read, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He had been prophesied hundreds of years before his birth. Second of all, he had a miraculous conception. Over in Luke chapter 1, verses 5-17, through 17, we find out that his mom was pretty old. She couldn't have any kids. His dad was a priest. And then they were visited and told that they were going to have a child. And it kind of scared them. And in verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Pretty impressive guy. His father was a priest. Therefore, his education in religion was bar none. Especially knowing the fact that his mom and dad knew that he was a miraculous baby. In fact, he was so miraculous that at one point, Jesus being the, not yet born, John being in the womb of his mother, Mary comes by and the child leaps in the womb being filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his birth, even in the womb. Now, I know that many of you think that you have some little angels at home, but uh, nobody was like this guy. It also alludes to the fact that he was a Nazarite in verse 15. If you want to turn with me, we'll briefly just look at what the Nazarite was in Numbers chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them whether when either a man or woman consecrates an offering or takes a vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separations he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from the seed To skin, all the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled, for which he was separated himself unto the Lord, he shall be holy. Now, this guy living in the world was very unique among men. Prophesied of by God, a unique conception. Holy, pure, filled with the Holy Spirit, trained in the home of a priest, filled with the Spirit, a Nazarite. And he also came, as we are told, in the spirit of Elijah. He was sort of like Elijah in that he was a prophet who was powerful, passionate, and lived a very consecrated and holy life. He also, we note, had simple clothes and a simple diet. We are told that he had a clothing of camel hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Um, Kind of my colloquial phrase for him would be Birkenstocks and tofu. (laughs) He was one of those guys who really didn't get caught up in the things of the world. And if you went over to his house, he'd probably say, hey, man, you ought to try this. It's really good for you. It's natural. Um, No, thanks, John. That's... No, that's not cool. No, it's really good for you. I mean, it just it has a lot of antioxidants in it, and no, I, that's cool. I'll I think I'll pass on it. To wrap it up, he was probably the most important prophet because he was the herald of the coming of the Messiah. He sort of bridged the old and the new testament, and he brought in. Ushering in the age of the Messiah coming to the earth, the promised one of Israel. Now, his doubt has been revealed to us. But his doubt in reality is nothing more than a right or correct question. He asked Jesus back in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Are you the one? Are we to look for another? Now, I've just gone over his pedigree. Pretty impressive, wouldn't you say? Yes? Well, how could someone of his caliber, how could someone like him ask such a question so full of doubt? Now, here are some possible reasons, I think. First of all, John is a human in very difficult circumstances. Prison in that culture was very rough and hard to take. Then there was loneliness. I'm sure loneliness became a part of his life. His disciples were able to come and visit him, but there's not that long-term connection. He's closed off in a hole, a man who had been used to being out in the sky, the fresh air, enjoying life, shut away, lonely. And then there's the fatigue of the malnourishment, the lack of exercise, There's the unfulfilled expectations. He, like many other people in his day, were looking for the Messiah. And he comes to a point and says, Are you the one? Are we to look for another? And and, and the phrase that's used there is another of a different kind. That maybe I'd missed the mark somehow. Then there's hope disappointed. If truly he was the Messiah and he was his cousin... Surely he would be able to get him out of this hole. And yet, for over a year, nothing had happened. He had been left there to rot. And then there is a lack of knowledge, which I think all of us suffer from from time to time. A lack of knowledge, real understanding of what God is going through. Now, how does this apply to us? Most of us do not have a pedigree like John. I certainly don't. I mean, I'm from West Texas. I learned to hoe cotton when I was a kid, went to church. But I certainly wasn't a Nazarite. I mean, I couldn't even be one now. You know, you have to kind of let your hair grow. All right. But difficult circumstances, just like John, come for us. Sometimes prison, maybe death of a family member, a loss of a job. There's also loneliness. That cold feeling of isolation can be found common among humans. And then there's fatigue. All of us living in American society today know what fatigue's about. We work ourselves to death. And then there's those unfulfilled expectations. I thought that you were going to make my life better, Jesus. Where's my mate? Where is that great job I've been praying for? And then there's hope disappointed. I called you in my time of need. God, I called out to you. I cried out to you. I prayed and you didn't answer my prayer. Why did my spouse leave me? Why was I let go from my job? Why did I get the diagnosis of this disease? And why have you done nothing? Now, we don't like to admit those things at church. And find you don't have to, you know. Because you're all church people, you want to look cool when you show up to church. But in our deep, darkest moments, in our frailty of humanity, those questions arise, even among the best of us. He, John, like many others, had a limited understanding of the coming one, i.e., the Messiah who he would be, and how he would present himself to the nation. Typically, we tend to view God's participation in our life as always benefiting us personally in our current situation. Don't we do that? God's will for my life. It's always a a, a blessing. I walked into a store today, and then I I, I looked on the ground, and I saw that there was this little coupon. And in the coupon, I got 50% off. And so... I went up and it was just such a blessing. Now, that could be true, but what if you hadn't picked it up and somebody who came in who just stole for a living all the time and they pick it up and what, are they going to thank God for that? We tend to think that God's will is always centered upon our current circumstances. But note this, just because we do not fully understand God's actions or at times may even pose questions about our faith does not mean that we are in sin. The sin of unbelief is bound only to the unbeliever. It's not for the believer. In fact, John, a child of God, is merely revealing the fact that he is limited in his perspective. He doesn't have the eternal perspective. And we have a tendency to get really bummed out when we can't see beyond our current circumstance that is so perilous it seems. It has been said that men will never become great in divinity until they become great in suffering Spurgeon had this to say of Luther he said ah Luther said affliction is the best book in my library and let me add that the best leaf in the book of affliction is that blackest of all leaves the leaf called heaviness when the spirit sinks within us and we cannot endure as we wish we could note this we never have to be afraid of asking God the hard questions. you know that? If what we believe is so fragile that we have to tiptoe around the facts, our beliefs should be abandoned. In contrast, we never have to fear the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if it isn't true, you know what? I have a suggestion for all of us. Why don't we shut the lights out and go home early? We don't have to fear the big questions. Well, you know, you're not supposed to ask that of God. Why would God allow this to happen in my life? Don't say that. You may curse yourself. God may get mad at you. Can I say something to you? God is never shocked at our questions. Now, I'm going to tell you something here. Honey, I'm I'm sorry. I'll go ahead and apologize now. I know that Carly's here. But she came to me last night with a statement from one of my children that probably will horrify many of you, and I'll, I'll get to see the looks in your faces. But for some reason, it really didn't shock me, but she said, I don't know what if Hudson really meant this, but he came up to me and he said, Mom, I really love boogers. <laughs> now, Hudson's three. And as I thought about it, she looked horrified like... Do you think he really meant it, you know, or is he just, he doesn't really understand what that means. Maybe he's thinking of burgers or, you know, something. And I know his character. It didn't shock me. Now, here's the good thing. Oftentimes, we are placed in this crucible that pounds us, that causes us to cry out and to get beyond our daily life into something deeper. And it causes us to ask hard questions that sometimes allow us to discover life-changing truth that had not previously been known to us. I would have never asked the question and therefore I would have never known the answer and therefore I would have known much less of who God is. Verse 4 through 6, we see his doubt confronted. Jesus has the right answer. John's doubt is brought out. He asked the right question and Jesus has the right answer. Look in verse 4 of Matthew 11. Jesus answered and said to him, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. The first thing we notice are the things that Jesus doesn't say. First thing we notice, Jesus doesn't say, shame on you, John, how could you? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, what will people think, John? I mean, you know, you're starting rumors like this. Both of us have a ministry going on. The government's against us. You know, I mean, come on, we need unity here. He didn't say it. He didn't appeal to his familiar relationship and say, well, you're a prophet. You should know better. And worst of all, you're my cousin. How could you? Wait till I tell Mom. Jesus will never be shocked. However, notice the answer that Jesus gives is based upon observable facts and scripture. The answer that he gives is based upon observable facts and truth that can be taken back and told to John the Baptist. He doesn't tell him, well, just get over it, John. Why don't you read your Bible? He gives him truth, observable facts, and Scripture. Here are the observable facts. He tells them to go tell John the things which you hear and see. And that is namely in verse 5. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now John knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And these pointed directly back to a number of Scriptures in Isaiah. And so if you would want to turn there, it would be a good thing. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. He says in 18, In that day, The deaf shall hear the word of the book and the eyes of the blind will see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. This was written hundreds of years before. Then in Isaiah 35, look at verse 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for the waters shall birth forth burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then in relationship to that final phrase that he says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me, we notice in Isaiah chapter eight beginning in verse 14 and 15, that he will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Jesus tells him that blessed is he Who is not offended because of him. All of these things were scriptures that John had heard in his early training for years. And the unique thing about this answer that Jesus gives is that this answer specifically points to something in John's mind. Because you see that Jesus understands the mind of every individual in this room and all individuals in the world. Never caught off guard. He knew the scriptures well and Jesus knew that he was speaking directly to John's heart. What about today? Okay, that was John. We understand he's a special guy He's great in the world. Jesus gives him the perfect answer that should calm his heart. But what about us today? Well, Jesus uses the same method in confronting our own times of doubt. I'll name a few. First of all, there's true life experiences. It's observable. It's a fact. It's observable facts about our walk with him. Remember when you got saved? How many of you remember the day that that you gave your life to Christ? What did it feel like on the inside? Wasn't it amazing? You'd ask forgiveness of your sins. You felt a rush of joy, maybe even emotion, as you poured out your heart to God and you cried out and you asked Him to forgive you. And there was that sense of fulfillment in your life that you knew that Christ was present and He was forgiving you, cleansing you. Causing you to be born again. It was truth. And then there are those moments in prayer. How many of you have had answered prayer in your life? Those of you who haven't, go ahead and raise your hand. It just I feel bad for you, you know. Um, now... There are those moments that we've prayed to God and we've asked for something we have entreated Him and then He does it and our minds are blown away. It's observable facts about our walk with God. I can remember a buddy of mine. Years ago, I was a house painter and I worked with this guy who never grew up in church. He always listened to thrash metal, just the worst thing. And we would be on the job. And in painting, you don't really have to think a lot. I mean, sorry if you guys are out there... Uh, who are painters, God bless you. But um, we had, we'd put headphones on and I would listen to the Bible or I was living up in the mountains and I got the tapes from this church. But my buddy just constantly listened to this stuff just trashing out of his ears consistently. And um, he knew that I was listening to the Bible and listening to teaching tapes. And one day he came to me and he said, hey, man, I'm tired of listening to this. My head hurts. Do you have anything I can listen to? And so, well, yes, I do right here. I have some tapes for you. So he started listening to him, listening to him, and listening to him. And we rode home together and he saw me reading my Bible and he became very interested. And one day he came to me and he said, man, I need to get saved. <laughs> I'm out of relationship with God, man. I, I don't know. I, I need God. And he had, we had just pulled it to my house and said, why don't you come in to my house and we'll pray together. And so we went in my room and we knelt down near my bed and he prayed and he poured out his heart to God and he gave his life to the Lord. And I said, man, I'm going to tell you what, no matter what happens in our life, you can always call me to remind you that I was here the day that you gave your life to Christ. It was real. Life comes, it, fl- it ebbs and it flows, and there are times of great joy and piety, and then there are those lows that seem to destroy us. But Jesus comes to John and Jesus comes to us and he reminds us of the truth, of the validity, of the real experience that we've had with Christ. You can't deny it. And just like he pointed to Scripture, he points to Scripture in our life. We have the testimony of Scripture. The truth of Scripture alone is powerful. As it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God... It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you do not have the common practice of reading the word, let me urge you tonight to take this up as a pursuit for the rest of your life. Do not leave it alone beside the bed, Do not leave your Bible on the coffee table, but take it with you. Let it become a part of your life and begin to read and to soak in the, uh, the truth that is objective, that's pure, that is holy from God. Our minds and our lives feed upon it, and it is a reserve for us when we go through treacherous times. Jesus uses it by his Spirit to remind us of the truth that we cannot deny. Now, not only does Jesus help out John in this way and help us out, he also gives us an example of the way that we're to react or to care for those who are hurting around us. We don't walk up to him and say, Brother, you just need a little more faith. Now, that's a negative confession, and I bind that and rebuke it. I can tell you, I'm a person who's struggled with melancholy my whole life. It's enabled me to write songs and to brood and read tons of books. But I think I've wore on some of my friends at times. Like, oh no, here comes Dave again. (sighs) Okay, let's just make this quick. Let's pray for him and then let's leave really quick. I love what Spurgeon said. These words so ministered to my heart. He said, Speak a kind word always. Find those who are weary. Do not avoid them because they are melancholy, but rather pursue them. Hunt them out. Do not let them be quiet in their nest of thorns. But if the Lord has given it to you to soar aloft into the clear blue ether, Try to carry your friend with you and lift him above the clouds. Suppose your house is on a hill and he lives in the marsh. Ask him to climb the hill and stay with you. It is just possible that you may live in the upper stories where you can see further and behold more of the blessed land. Ask him to come up from his cellar and walk on the roof of your palace and scan the prospects through your telescope. Encourage him. We do not leave those who are in despair behind, though they bringeth bummer upon us. (laughs) We must grab them up. Look into their hearts and proclaim the truth that we know about God and their experience. And do not leave them in that quagmire, in that dungeon. But we pull them up and say, come with me. We leave no one behind. We bring them with us. We see the true, loving, pure heart of God in these words. Difficult as it may be to handle. Some of you folks, I'm going to tell you, I know, I know a lot of you. Some of you never get depressed. Some of you never know the doubts of despair, but you know those who do. Take hold of them with the heart of Jesus and bring them along to better pastures. Now, let's look at verse 7 through 11. In these verses, doubt is confounded. We see the right affirmation. Verse 7, Jesus. it says that as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in fine or soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft garments are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, before your face, who will prepare your way before me. That's out of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. In verse 11, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. What? A compliment. Imagine the scene. Jesus tells his disciples, Go tell John these things. Comfort him with these things. And as they are leaving, they hear in the background Jesus speaking these words. And I wonder if some of his disciples lingered to hear what he would say of John. And these words confound doubt in a way That is immeasurable to the person who is struggling. Namely this. God knows everything about you and me. Everything. He knew all the things that happened in John's life. He knows all of your sacrifice, all your suffering, everything you have done for the kingdom in his name. John is affirmed in his ministry. In Jesus revealing that this work is not man's work, but it's God's work. Because it always starts with God and it will always end with God. That's the way it works. You see, John, he says, was spoken of in Malachi years before John was ever born. It is God who chose him. It is God who calls him. And I tell you what, You hear the words of this doubting man. He's speaking to this crowd. I tell you, of of men born among women, yea, I don't say that there's anyone greater. What a statement. And I wonder if perhaps one of those disciples lingering could have heard that and took it back to John. And the crushing weight of truth confounded his doubt in a way that was awesome. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we hear these words. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amy Carmichael, in her writing work, Gold Cord, describes her time in India, a time when she felt so overwhelmed. She said, At last a day came when the burden grew too heavy for me. And then it was as though as through the tamarind trees about the house were not tamarind, but olive. And under one of these trees, our Lord Jesus knelt, and he knelt alone. And I knew that this was his burden, not mine. It was he who was asking to share it with him. Not I asking him to share it with me. After that there was only one thing to do. Who that saw him kneeling there could turn away and forget. Who could have done anything but go into the garden and kneel beside him under the olive tree. You see John's burden was not John's but it was Christ's. That's who it was. And your burden is Christ? Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, we are told in Scripture. He told his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. He also stated that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Now here are the facts about Jesus, John, and the early followers. John was beheaded. Jesus was beaten and crucified on a cross. Stephen was stoned. James was killed. Peter was crucified. Andrew was crucified. John, the apostle, was boiled in oil. And the list goes on way into the millions who have come afterwards. So the truth is, is that Jesus never promised us a life of leisure and fine cars, did he? That's the American dream. It's a pretty cool dream, you know, if you're going to have one. But it doesn't come from the Lord. This life, my friend, is filled with sorrow. In John chapter 16, verse 33, we read, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This life is filled with sorrow, but a life in Christ, ah, it's glorious. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. I love the way it reads in the Old King James. He says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I have a book on my shelf that is written by a young man who had died at the age of 29. Over 150 years ago, he wrote down his letters and sermons and left an impact on a whole generation, his generation. His name was Robert Murray McShane. And he writes to a friend who was doubting. He said, My dear friend, I do trust you are seeking hard after him whom your soul loveth. He is not far from any one of us. He is a powerful and precious Savior. And happy are they who put their trust in him. He is the rose of Sharon, lovely to look upon, having all divine and human excellencies meeting in himself. And yet he is the lily of the valleys, meek and lowly in heart, willing to save the vilest. He answers the need of your soul. You are all guilt. He is the fountain to wash you. You are all naked. He is a wedding garment to cover you. You are dead. He is life. You are all wounds and bruises. He is the balm of Gilead. His righteousness is broader than our sin, and then he is so free. Remember the word we read at the draw well, what, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Jesus was near to John, and Jesus is very near to us. I know it's hard to believe in our circumstances, but it's true. We have a mission in this life that goes far beyond ourselves and our circumstances. Now, I wonder what happened to those guys we were reading about. Remember Christian and his buddy in Doubting Castle? I happen to know that they would spent a few more nights there. They were beaten some more. Uh, the encouraging words of diffidence told the old giant to go tell them that they should commit suicide. It was a rough time, and then they spent the following Saturday in prayer. And we pick up here where it says, Now a little before daylight, good Christian broke out in a passionate speech. What a fool I am to lie in a stinking dungeon when I can freely walk away. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will I am persuaded. Open any lock in doubting castle. Then said hopeful, What is good news? That is good news, good brother. Pull it out of your bosom and try. Then Christian pulled out the key of promise and began to try the dungeon door. As he turned it, the bolt slid back and the door flew open with ease and Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went out to the outer door that led into the castle yard and with his key he opened that door also. And after he went to the iron gate, for that door must be opened too. That lock was very hard to turn, yet the key did open it. Then they threw open the gate to make their escape quickly, but the gate made such a creaking noise as it opened that it aroused the giant despair. He rose hastily to pursue those prisoners, but fell his legs frail, for one of his fits had took him again. So that he could not go after them. So Christian and hopeful went on and came to the king's highway. And thus they were safe because they were out of the despair's jurisdiction. Now, they left, I'm sure, with the promise of God's word. And that's where we want to leave tonight. Our circumstances may or may not change because of our faith, but certainly our outlook and perspective will change dramatically, leaning upon the promises of God. Though they left out with the promises of God, I am sure, no doubt, that their body was full of scars. And I'll close with this. It's a little quote by a poem written by Amy Carmichael. And I often read it. And I'm drawn back to the truth about the example that we have in the life of Jesus Christ. She says, Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright and ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned, hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound? our scar. Let's pray. Lord, you are our great tower, a strong tower that we are able to run into in times of despair. It is your truth, God, that enables us to do that which is impossible, to go beyond our limits. Lord, I pray that tonight that those who are discouraged and hurting would feel your presence. Would hear your words and be reminded of the truth that you are in their lives. That they would not be found as a casualty of the enemy, but a triumphant, though battered soldier. We love you, Lord. And we entrust our faith and life to you. Help us, Lord, to walk in a manner that is worthy of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.